WBZ original. We went to some pretty great lengths to provoke Conan. And it didn't work He's out. He's not having it. Yeah. It's pretty sad. It's okay. Frankly. That's unfortunate. <laughs> I really, really wanted to be it's a one-way beef. It's like how BC thinks Notre Dame is a foe, but Notre Dame doesn't acknowledge us at all. (laughs) 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 Welcome to Studio BZ, Alston's number one podcast. Oh, easily, easily. This is season three, episode eight, and welcome in, everybody. I'm Paula Evans. In beautiful, wintry Boston. I took the kids sledding today for the first time in two years. Last year, there was no sledding snow and there hadn't been any this year either because every time it snowed it instantly washed away this was perfect. i kind of like this the way it hung on the trees a bit you went sledding with the kids you some can sled on ice can't you <clears throat> uh my kids can't oh <laughs> you can i can not what it's all about really. that's what it's all about so yeah. we're having fun and we have a ton to talk about today starting with a very special debate that john keller had well you know uh I thought that I had moderated a bunch of tough debates over the years. I've done debates with six candidates in them, debates where the candidates were ready to tear each other's faces off. Mm. But nothing I don't think will ever match what Paula Eben went through, moderating the debate between myself and a distinguished architecture professor over the anniversary of a brutalist architectural landmark, Boston City Hall. Mm. And uh, John was clear about his hatred for the, yeah. the architecture. He has always been. The professor gives real insight into why you should respect it, even if you walk by Boston City Hall and hate it. Well, can I, I know we're going to get to the debate in just a moment. I will quickly say, did he, I know he didn't move John's opinion. Did he no. move yours at all, Paul? He did. He gave me more reason to respect it. I privately dislike yeah, Boston City right. Hall as well, but I didn't weigh in during It's like this the, the, the Vince Vaughn moment in Anchorman where he lifts Ron Burgundy up and he says, I hate Hey, you, but I respect. Damn it you. all! I respect. Oh, when was the last time you were inside? Uh, Boston I was. City. I was inside. Liam and I were inside the day of the Patriots we parade. It yeah. is dark and dingy, but I just thought the professor really does an excellent job of <laughs> of making you respect yeah. where the thought lines came from. When you were there the other day for the Pat celebration, would you rate the intensity of the urine smell (laughs) at a 10 on a scale of 10 or lower than that? I went into a ladies room just off the lobby that I specifically commented on to Liam. Went to right. 11. Yeah. No, yeah. No, no. You, you, when you yeah. walk in, you're in a dungeon. It's horrible. You're in a very dark. When you walk into City Hall Plaza. He speaks you, to that. You know, I've always been with you on this, John. I'm still okay. with you on it, but right. I do want to hear the debate. We will get mm-hmm. to that in a moment. Yep. In the meantime. Oh, also, Liam and I talked about the 50 most underrated colleges. This is a fascinating list put together by a Cambridge company called College Vine, a really ingenious company that's growing that helps your high school juniors and seniors with the typical SAT prep, essays, uh, how to compile their list of schools. The twist for them is they have now, uh, things being what they are, economically speaking, added in the layover that families uh, go through when choosing their list, the financial piece. Which schools will give you the most money? So we had a really, really interesting conversation with their data guy about why these 50 colleges are 50 schools to really go for. And then our last topic, how to be happy 
with Amherst psychology professor Katherine Sanderson. She's got a new book out called The Positive Shift, Mastering Mindset to Improve Happiness, Health, and Longevity. Lisa Hughes and I talked with her about her book and how we can be happier. So last week was the 50th anniversary of Boston City Hall. Something to be celebrated in some quarters. What a dump. Not so much in the mind of John <laughs> Keller, who hates uh, it. Vile dungeon. Uh, we got into a debate that got pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, we invited Mark Pasnick, right. a lovely man, a professor of architecture at Wentworth Institute, and he is the co-author of the book, Heroic, Concrete Architecture and the New Boston. And before I turn it over to John, mm. I would argue that the professor was very measured, Mm-hmm. In his response to your hatred, yeah. he had good responses and, and really delivered a lot of food for thought for people whose knee-jerk reaction is to just hate brutalism, and he really explains why we should appreciate it. Totally agree, and this gentleman demonstrated that being profoundly, profoundly wrong doesn't make you a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not in the slightest. You know, I will just uh, let me interject one thing. I, I was not part of this debate. Paula moderated because I felt like I just didn't. I don't know much about architecture, and I feel feel kind of like a luddite with this whole thing. I will say number one, the police showed up because it was so <laughs> intense between John and this professor. So make sure you listen for that. And it didn't actually happen, everyone. But uh, the other thing is, I. The, I would say in response to this notion that he convinced me that there's something to be respected about it is that architecture is like art or a painting. If I look at it, I should know instantly whether I like it or not. I don't need to study it to know. It's just it's it's there to be looked at. Oh, yes. does that look ugly or does that look pretty or and does that look in between? Reaction. That's what it's for. You can't will yourself into going, oh, that look. It's, it's just However, it's either good or However, I would it's say not. he makes a good argument that unlike just a piece of art, architecture in a city like Boston, at the point where it was built in the 20th century, yeah. the reasons behind it, the thought behind it, why it was sure. deemed necessary. It, look it like makes jump, you say, though. well, okay, these people just don't have hideous taste. They were trying something. Well, <laughs> and to me, it's like trying to persuade you that there's redeeming social value in a toxic waste dump. But <laughs> listen to the debate and make up your own minds. We debate, you decide. So joining us is professor and author Mark Pasnick from Wentworth Institute, uh, an expert on architecture who has written a book on brutalism and many other publications as well. John Keller is here. I'm sort of here to moderate oh, this come on. conversation. <laughs> Make sure we don't get into a fight. <laughs> well, I'm here to be the person on the street who just observes architecture just on subjective, I like it or I don't. And John is a real architecture well, I'm, buff. But not an expert but by any means. But a real passion for you. Well, the the sort of the hook for having in here, Professor, was the fiftieth uh, anniversary of Boston City Hall. Everyone's describing it as a sort of a classic uh, of the genre of brutalism. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, brutalism, uh, uh, a word uh, derived from the word for concrete, mm-hmm. right? Because beton brut in the r- French, it's right. raw concrete. Yes. Is that true of Boston City Hall? Is it perceived that way as this iconic representation of brutalism? I, I would use the word masterwork of that period. It's definitely a masterwork. And I would also argue it's one of the most important 
buildings architecturally in the city of Boston. Why? Why? Uh, so there's a number of reasons. Um, and generally, when we evaluate buildings uh, historically, uh, or even for questions of preservation, for instance, whether a building's worth preserving, there are a number of factors, one of which is aesthetic, so whether you like it or not. Um, and, and that can be one value judgment that we might make on a building like Boston City Hall. Uh, but there are many others, what sort of historical value it has, uh, what sort of value as a, a kind of moment in time, recording something that may have been a set of ideas of a time, uh, how it might, in the case of Boston City Hall, reflect a city reinventing its image of itself, uh, how it was also a tool of catalyzing uh, development of what, what the Boston Globe called a hopeless backwater uh, at the time, uh, a city that was really the city yeah, more the city broadly. Yeah, the yeah. city more broadly. And so there's a number of these kinds of uh, potential things we might associate with the building that would be part of the character. Aesthetics is certainly one of them and probably the one that the public most actively participates in, but there are many other factors as to the value of what a building is worthwhile. Let's just back up a moment, just brutalism as, a, as an architectural style, because there are many examples throughout the country, in Washington, D.C., other cities. Uh, just explain uh, you know, where the concept, where the whole idea originally emerged from, what school of thought in sure. architecture? Uh, yeah, I'll say two things. One, which is the uh, sort of international, what was known as the new brutalism, as sort of the beginning of that movement uh, came out of the uh, the United Kingdom, um, a historian named Rainer Banham and uh, an architecture couple, the Smithsons, were sort of lead advocates of this in the 1950s uh, in London. Uh, they picked up on a language that they saw emerging out of uh, the French-Swiss architect Le Corbusier, uh, who was building shortly after World War I without access to steel, without uh, access to a trained community of, um, of craftspeople, uh, using this rough concrete language. And so the uh, brutalism grew out of the idea of raw concrete, beton brut. Uh, so it originated as a historical movement or as a kind of... Um, ethic, as the historian called it, not an aesthetic, but actually an ethic, as a way of doing uh, what he phrased three things, using materials as found, uh, uh, expressing structure and systems, uh, and the third part was creating a memorable image. Those were the terms that he thought brutalism were really about. Uh, and in fact, the first brutalist building, interestingly enough, was really a glass and steel building uh, with brick. Um, it had no concrete in it at all. Uh, but the movement later became uh, shifted towards what we might think of as a, a, an aesthetic rather than an ethic movement, um, uh, described by uh, an association, a very strong association with concrete. What's uh, the time frame of the, the so emergence the, of this? So in the 1950s in the UK, and then it really transplants to the US, and the US version is quite different. Um, I think uh, in the UK, the, the, the idea of exposing the systems and the structure and the rawness of the concrete was oftentimes a commentary similar to artistic commentaries of the time on the rough realities of what it was like to be in London in the 1950s, post-World War II, a city that was still kind of trying to rebuild itself. Uh, flash forward a few years when it comes to the US, uh, and brutalism is really more stylistic. It's more associated with concrete. It's also 
uh, blossoming at a time of a great economic expansion and opportunity in the U.S. So the, the context is very different. Uh, but what I think drew many architects to the movement in the U.S. in this period is that there had been in the 1950s a predominance in the U.S. of uh, glass and steel, global, international style modernism. Uh, and as the civic realm of our country started to grow in the 60s with the, uh, you know, the growth of the welfare state and the uh, emergence of government programs, there was a desire to look for a language of architecture that would reflect the civic society in a different way than the corporate society. And so these robust, monumental, heavy buildings were perceived as a better way to express that kind of civic culture. Well, in fact, in your book, uh, Heroic Concrete Architecture in the New Boston that you co-wrote with with two other gentlemen, you uh, collect some of the litany of of praise for Boston City Hall. Mm -hmm. Wolf von Eckert wrote, it's a great work of architecture that proclaims the majesty of government by the people. John Conti in the Wall Street Journal. Spaces are meant to be grand and permanent, symbolic of the democratic ideals of a city, and, and so forth and so on. How does Boston City Hall live up to these this praise? Uh, so the praise, and I, I should say that, you know, uh, it, it was a controversial building at the beginning, too. It wasn't that it was all praise. It tended to get praised by uh, architecture critics, uh, and then consternation by the public, uh, although there was a lot of uh, public response to it as a kind of new vision for Boston, like this is amazing that our city can produce something that's so original and unique, and that may have been the premier building of that time period. Uh, so it, it received widespread praise, uh, like you're talking about, but it also, there was one um, headline in, uh, the, um, now I'm forgetting which uh, newspaper it was, but it was, um, uh, it was work of art, question mark, filling station, question mark, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, city councilors yet to decide, something right. <laughs> along those lines. So it did have that kind of controversy from the start. But uh, in terms of its grandeur, uh, even Ada Louise Huxtable said uh, Boston has one of the handsomest buildings around and thus far one of the least understood. And I, I think she was, uh, she went on to describe the architecture gap between the quality of the building and its public perception. And that's been something dogging it for some time. Well, let's get into that because okay. I'm sort of here as a representative of that negative public <laughs> perception. I have, I have and, seen a few of your writings. Yeah, and I know. It's yeah. great to have a real uh, a scholar to of this it. here who can help, maybe help change my mind or at least help me understand better because over the course of the past 40 years, I've uh, worked as a reporter in City Hall. Uh, I worked as an employee of a Boston city councilor briefly, so actually as a, as a day-to-day office worker in the building, visited it as a citizen mm-hmm. uh, to pay tickets and whatnot, uh, interacted with it in many ways, patriots, victories, celebrations, of which there have now been too, too many to count. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I, I don't even know if I can count the ways in which I lo- have loathed the experience. Uh, it is, from the outside, certainly an impressive sight, particularly when it's lit up for one reason or another. Uh, but it is foreboding. To me, it screams uh, maximum security prison, not grand representative of democratic ideals. Uh, you To enter it is kind of a fearsome experience. The entrance is not inviting. It's, it's cold. It's harsh. 
Uh, you get inside and it's confusing, uh, hard to find your way around in this sort of multi-levered uh, floor system they have. Uh, also leads to a lot of wasted space. I've never seen a building uh, with more wasted space than the interior of Boston City Hall. Uh, the uh, windows uh, okay, are Okay, now poorly. can I interrupt? Yeah. <laughs> We're going to stop there. Stop. Okay. Let's, 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 just, let's just let you start with the... <laughs> okay. What imposing structure and the entrance. Okay, so the entrance, I mean, the, the whole idea of the building is to be continuous with the exterior. They're really, um, and, and again, I, I should preface by saying, um, uh, you know, your opinion is your opinion, and I would have a different opinion. And in some ways, uh, our job isn't to change your opinion about the building. You can, and, and widely, uh, I don't ever try to change people's opinion about the building, but I, I try to ha- help them understand it better mm-hmm. and understand the context of why it has value. Even if you think it's ugly, mm-hmm. you could still understand it as a significant work of architecture that's worthy of uh, preserving and also maybe improving. So that's one part of the equation that, you know, hasn't happened yet is it's a 50-year-old building. Um, it's struggled under what every 50-year-old building struggles under, um, and it can certainly use some improvements, which the city, I think, is um, you know considering for the future. Uh, but that doesn't answer some of your critiques themselves, uh, which I would say the intentions of the building are to be quite open. Um, so the idea that the brick continues from the outside to the inside is supposed to signal a kind of continuity between the inside and the outside of the building. Um, um, the uh, the glass you know that encloses the building uh, between those um, giant columns uh, is supposed to be as transparent as possible, so that you could really see a sense of that this is an open framework for you to enter into. Again, you may not perceive it that way, uh, but that was the intention of it. Um, the design is very clever in in a number of ways. In that um, even from it started as a competition, the building was uh, designed in a competition setting. Uh, Two hundred and fifty six firms. Up applied from across the U.S. Uh, eight finalists were, were selected uh, and given, I think, $5,000 to continue uh, the design. And then the, the building that we know today was selected as the winner of that process. Um, and in it, uh, in their vision for the building, they really saw it as democratic, as a space, what you call wasted space, they think of as the heart of the building, you know, that giant staircase. Uh, the Boston Pops performed at the opening under Arthur Fiedler in that uh, giant chamber. Um, Were the acoustics as horrible then as they are now? Uh, it was very, I'm sure it was very reflective. Uh, okay. It's not a, a, yeah. a good concert uh, I will add, space. The shock, his shock of white hair must have been the way people could see him because it's it's also so dark. Yeah, when yeah. You walk in there. Well, and there's yeah. been a pilot project recently that was completed to to upgrade the lighting in mm. that space, which I think has made a, a big difference. Uh, the lighting had been out for you know my entire life here in Boston, I think. I don't think I'd ever seen the light fixtures on in that space, but now that they're on, it's actually a very different kind of space. So in terms of accessibility, the whole competition premise was that you would put the functions that people go to City Hall for on the lowest level, and that that would be part of the plaza experience leading into that, that you wouldn't have to go up into an elevator and get lost upstairs, but in fact, you'd be in those lower level chambers to pay your parking tickets, get your uh, marriage license, all of that kind of stuff. Of course, We've changed around the building quite a lot. Now, most of our stuff is done online, so there's less reason for the building to be set up. It was originally envisioned to to have uh, up to 5,000 people a day 
uh, entering and using those lower floors. Um, and you could imagine that what you're calling wasted space would have been much more activated by um, the quantities of people that would have been using it um, in, in that time frame, whereas today it looks a little more desolate. Now, which came first, the uh, plan for Boston City Hall or the raising of Scully Square to create City Hall Plaza? So uh, the removal of Scully Square, the raising of Scully Square, uh, is part of a longer process that predates the design of the building itself, Mm. uh, but that led to the design of the building. So there were several urban plans for that area of of the city, starting in 1957, I think might have been the first one, um, and eventually leading to the final version of the plan, which was by I.M. Pei's office with Harry Cobb uh, as one of the principals. Um, And uh, that plan called for a keystone building at the heart of it, um, which would be the the city hall. It was meant to be the most symbolic and important. But, But the whole idea of government center, which was really spearheaded and directed by Ed Logue um, as he came to the BRA, um, became an important leader of that. Uh, He saw it as important to, I'm I'm trying to think of the phrase that he used, it was something sort of like um, uh, concentrating your punches. There's some phrase that I'm not remembering right now, but um, he thought that by bringing uh, the federal government, the state government, and the city government into one place, that they could recharge the city center and create uh, new, uh, catalyze new economic opportunity for the downtown Boston. Keep in mind, Boston had built very little between mm-hmm. 1930 and the mid-1950s, almost nothing. If you look at the skyline in 1964, it's shockingly low. Uh, there's very little that's been built. If you look at the skyline of New York in that same ter- mm-hmm. time period, can pay and Cobb be blamed for City Hall Plaza, which I hope there's no argument, has always been an abomination, of windswept, <laughs> treacherous in the winter, uh, air open area that they've been frantically trying to figure out how to enliven without much success for decades. Well, as with anything, I think it's a complicated story, uh, anything in Boston in particular. Uh, I think there is some uh, question about the planning uh, strategies and organization, whether it was too open, um, too solid. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there's plenty of things to critique in the urban renewal moment um, yes. and in terms of that. And so uh, uh, Harry and I.M. Pei's firm, uh, in fact, had a plan that was supposed to be a little bit greener than what got produced. In fact, their final plan shows a sort of green surface, uh, but the plaza became a hardscape because there was a belief that Boston didn't, and I, and I would actually agree with this, that doesn't have sufficient amount of hardscape space for things like ga- large gatherings, protests, circuses, all that kind of stuff. It's really the only space in the city that can support larger things, and it's quite successful at that. What it's not quite successful at is the day-to-day, it's the day-to-day. experience. So when you're there, when a team is celebrating a great victory, um, you know, you can't move that somewhere. That can't be in the common. We have the common for right. uh, the day-to-day. The question is, can the future of the plaza be made to a point where it can do both, where it can be a celebratory large-scale space, but also a day-to-day yeah. it, positive It is space. interesting. John and I were talking earlier. Um, one of the other, I, I thought of it because most people are familiar with the Watergate Hotel in mm-hmm. Washington, D.C., which is also an example of brutalism. And when you look at 
at, at Photo Gazette, there is much more green space outside that curved architecture. It, it seem it looks much more pleasant yeah. than the plaza. So it makes sense that you're saying that perhaps this is one of those uh, experiences most people who have renovated go through. When you're the, at that last 10%, well, you cut out the expenses yeah. <laughs> at the end and you it just was, brick everything over. I don't think it was that, yeah. though. I think it was – I mean, they. I think they felt that it had to be like a plaza, like a European plaza. Yes. And there's some of the drawbacks are that there aren't the activation around the edge the it's way there terraced. might be. Yeah. Um, what do you say to the average person who walks by and just uh, – there are two things to me. I think knowing what we know now, uh, people in Boston – generally have studied and heard that the raising of the West End was just a catastrophic mistake Mm -hmm. in urban planning of the mid-20th century, displacing tens of thousands of people and thousands of families. And then Scully Square, which, as John says, now would perhaps be an incredible area that could be revitalized, that it's associated with that. And that when they look at this Plaza, and then the the brutalist architecture. They think it's just it's just ugly. Boston lost the West End and Scully Square for this. They bulldozed you know, the they this bulldozed European and city lives for this. And yeah. left this scar. So so I'll say a few things to that. But one of yeah. one of which is uh, you know working with Harry Cobb on his uh, memoir or not memoir. It's really a, a collection of essays and uh, works by him. Um, so you know, if he was partly responsible for the urban planning of the uh, uh, of the project that followed the demolition in Scully Square, he told us a story, and in fact, it's in the book, recounted in the book. Um, of his father lived on Beacon Hill. Um, Harry came from Boston uh, and then moved to New York uh, to do work uh, with I.M. Pei's office, and uh, he he recounted a day where he walked down Beacon Hill with his father. Uh, and, and in the midst of the construction uh, and demolition of Scully Square, uh, his father turned to him and said, Harry, you've taken away my Boston. Now imagine mm. being a young designer and your father saying that. So That's I tough think to hear. Harry said the success of that project was also the things that make it problematic, that there were many reasons why the project had to take the form that it did at that time. Uh, And again, you have to put yourself in the mind of the moment of the 1950s in Boston. Imagine your city is dying on the vine. Again, a quote from the uh, Boston Globe. What do you do? Um, There was losing population, uh, losing the tax base. It it had the the highest taxes in in the country, the Mm. highest taxes in the country. We're here in Boston. There was really no future for Boston. Uh, And so urban planners, maybe in a misguided way, but certainly with a sense of urgency, realized that something needed to be done that was drastic. They couldn't just preserve neighborhoods and uh, do the kinds of things that maybe we can afford to do today because the city needed radical action. Now, whether the radical action they did was successful or not uh, is another question, but I do understand the mindset of saying we need to do something to change this. I mean, it, look, it, it, in hindsight, it's so easy to criticize that that's not going to yeah. stop me, though. <laughs> uh, because uh, when you see, first of all, at that time, how whatever Boston's problems, and you described them quite accurately, we were you know, a dying city, yeah. no question about it, uh, there was still the European model and, you know, tourism to Europe drawn by these dense cities where with old architecture and teeming street life and plazas that had life to them and uh, gorgeous fountains and focal points and churches and restaurants bordering on them, unlike City Hall Plaza. And, but and but to, Scully Square wasn't 
wasn't well, well, particularly Skull nice. Square was kind of a red light district. Yeah. Nonetheless, there were a lot of tenements around it. With tenements, the benefit of hindsight, or, you'd yeah. think to yourself, if we still had even part of Scully Square or even part of the Old West End, these were already a, a huge tourist draw from all over the world, primarily because we're seen as the most European of American cities. How much more we be able to benefit from that, it seems to me, I think the planners really blew it with yeah. the benefit of hindsight. Well, I, don't, I wouldn't agree because I think uh, I don't think we would be the city that could do what it's done in the decades since had this project not catalyzed development. So again, whether you like the project or not, it, had a, it, it did create a new Boston. And so things like, for instance, the um, uh, Quincy Market were enabled by this project. Right? How they so? Were part, um, because it launched a whole ability for the city to actually uh, attract uh, uh, businesses back uh, to have the economic capacity to uh, develop. So, so the BRA did both the Scully Square project, the government center project, and then also did studies at the same time right, to it was... renovate the uh, Quincy Market, Faneuil Hall Marketplace. So, that was such an enormous project at the time. It was so exciting yeah. that Mayor White was overseeing this transformation of what looked like an old dumpy colonial warehouse exactly. that had been abandoned. Yeah. And suddenly, there, I think we take it for granted now because it's more of a tourist attraction in Boston than filled with Bostonians. Absolutely. But when it opened, I mean, this was a, coming from central Massachusetts. This yeah. was a huge draw mm-hmm. into Boston by the late 70s that, as you say, did not exist. Yeah. And uh, to your point about the West End, I would I would try to historically differentiate the West End, which I don't think anybody will ever defend, sure. uh, and Scully Square as two separate yeah. projects. The West End starts in the 50s. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of before even the BRAs really formed. And it's certainly before Ed Logue arrives to the city. And what Ed Logue does is he brings a lot of federal money into Boston. That's why he was brought here by Mayor Collins, because he had brought so much federal money into New Haven. Um, And so, you know, same thing. They wanted the same thing for Boston. Right. Um, And he brings with him a desire to have high design standards along with urban renewal. And the West End didn't have that. Uh, He finishes the West End because it's already underway. But his goal with uh, with Government Center was to bring high quality design. So our whole civic design board was created at that time. Uh, now, you might not agree with them. They were all uh, leaders of universities, of, of schools of architecture, uh, very, very internationally known figures. Uh, and Ed Logue and they liked concrete. And it was the language of the time. And so you see a lot of it. But whether or not you like it, it was a very, very high quality design standard. And it went through a very rigorous process. Well, as someone who grew up in an academic household, and with all due respect to you and all academics, academics don't always have the right idea. (laughs) That's possible. I've seen that Um, before. uh, Getting back to the broader subject of brutalism in Boston, um, uh, I I don't want you to think I'm a total Luddite. I I am a fan of the, I believe it's the Carpenter Center over Harvard. Okay, by Le Corbusier, yep. So that's the architect that I was talking about, his only building in North America. Yes. That, for the folks that don't know, that's next, across the street from Harvard Yard. It's the Visual Arts Center at Harvard, and it's a very striking building that somehow fits in and complements the older 
Harvard buildings that surround it. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, uh, the Kennedy Federal Building at the other end of City Hall Plaza from City Mm -hmm. Hall. By by the firm of Walter Gropius, with Walter Gropius involved, Um, a a major leader of the architecture school at Harvard. Yeah, And the the Bauhaus, too. Sorry, Walter, but (laughs) not my favorite building. I can imagine. And then up the street, I believe it's the The Lindemann Center, which is where the uh, the state unemployment office used to be. But, or and maybe health, still and, health and human services. Health and human services. As well, yeah. This Both is the one which on the, on the Boston Garden side of it has the long curving staircase movie buffs will recognize from The Departed. Right. Um, by, by Paul Rudolph. And I'm going to predict that you don't like that one. <laughs> well, here's the thing. It is striking. That okay, it, absolutely. And visually Dramatic. striking. The problem is in the practical reality of that building is that staircase is... Uh, for much of the day shrouded in darkness just by the nature of what's around it. And it is, I call it, the cascading waterfall of discarded Dunkin' Donuts cups. Mm -hmm. It's a magnet for windswept trash and debris. Mm. Just Uh, collects there. It's an eyesore. Mm -hmm. It has become an eyesore. What went wrong, or am I wrong? Uh, well, I think it has. It's it's got enormous problems today, and yeah. and so this is fundamentally one of the problems of uh, brutalist architecture or concrete architecture, or what we like to call heroic architecture, uh, is that it's built during the 1960s when there's massive amounts of public investment in city government buildings, and now it exists 50 years later at a time where we've stripped away budgets. Uh, so maintenance and other things are are a near impossibility. Janitorial services. That uh, yeah, kind of thing. just yeah. picking up all those uh, those bits improving of trash lighting. and improving. Now, uh, DCAM, the uh, state agency, uh, is the owner or oversees the maintenance and management of that building, and they've been doing some things to help improve it. If you've been by there lately, you'll see that the chain link is finally being removed um, because they're creating um, new uh, handrails that allow you to access spaces which had been designed according to 1960s standards, uh, but according to today's standards, the handrails are all too low. Um, so for a while there, for almost five years probably, the building was wrapped in chain link to, you know, as a protective device. So that that doesn't help its impression yeah. <laughs> among anyone. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that's being solved. And I think many of these issues are very solvable. Uh, these buildings do, I think, deserve additional investment in them. They're 50 years old. They've done their service. It's time to, you know, I'm almost to, about to hit 50 and I feel like I could use a few facelifts too. Um, and I think these buildings are, you know, in desperate need of it. And actually at the, uh, you know, typically if we talk about preservation of buildings, it's when they hit 50 years uh, that they, they come it. up against the, the, the most danger to their, their longevity. So when we talk about the sort of blight of the 50s, my grandfather worked for Mayor Hines mm-hmm. between oh. 50 and 60 and was on the committee that laid out the Freedom Trail, okay, trying great. to get tourists yeah. to yeah. come yeah. back. And, and Hines is the is the beginning of the, the sort of turning the city yes. around. Yeah. He starts it, but he's, he, you know, and so projects emerge out of that. The West End emerges out of that, unfortunately. Right. But again, it was the trying to right the ship that had yeah. uh, gone astray. And yeah. then Collins comes in and uh, right. continues out of it. So again, the, the history is really complicated. It sort of grows from, uh, you know, uh, essentially replacing Curley's administration, which had, I think, been a major cause of the fact that there was so little development in the city because the, the money so class didn't trust the yeah. political class right. and those two would not work together. Um, and a place so, that really resents change. Well, yes. Let's yeah. be honest. Will Boston City Hall still be around in 50 years from now? 
I, I believe it will be, yes. Um, will it still be City Hall? I suspect it will be. I don't know for sure. Uh, even Ed Logue uh, hedges his bets at one point. He says uh, if, uh, if people tire of it as a city hall, it will become something else. Yeah. Sort of, Did, uh, didn't Romanino float the idea of selling it? Oh, he yeah, did. Romanino yeah. hated yeah. it. He really yeah. just word, Let's it. see. What was the word you used? Oh, hideous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, hideous load of concrete, I think, was the exact phrase uh, you used once. Uh, and I think you used hideous a second time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm nothing um, if not redundant. Uh, you know, we, we've come across the word monstrosity used quite a lot. Yeah. Concrete monstrosity is a very common word. Uh, but the, the word monstrosity is also in the 1950s and 60s used almost always with Victorian architecture or French Second Empire architecture architecture. Uh. And so you look at a generational issue, like people looking at a work, a body of work that's usually about 50 years old, the Victorian period, uh, 50 years after it was completed, uh, there was a whole generation that thought these were the ugliest, uh, most monstrous, most brutal, most hideous buildings, and many of them were lost. Uh, And today we treasure them. Uh, And French Second Empire buildings like our own uh, old city hall, or like the um, uh, Harry Truman called the old executive building in Washington, D.C., the greatest monstrosity in America. Oh, right? interesting. So, uh, so I think there's a perspective question. By the time you're the next generation, you might appreciate it in a different way. And I'm actually seeing that with my students. There's a lot more appreciation among young people for uh, brutalist buildings. They're innovative and interesting. They may be heavy and monumental, but look at all the stuff we're building now. It's lightweight, delicate, and transparent. Why wouldn't we appreciate the few remaining artifacts that are you know, strong and bold in a very different way as we build, uh, you know, we can't afford to build, you'll be happy to know this, we can't afford to build concrete buildings any longer, they're too expensive. Uh, But I do think that there's a a question of they mark a moment, they have a kind of power, uh, and we should be excited to celebrate that. Even if we think it's ugly, it's a sort of unique thing that's a part of the landscape of our city. Well, Professor Mark Pasnick, you've defended brutalism well, and You made so many points that do make you look at it and appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us on Studio BZ. Thank you very much. The city is for some glamorous, stimulating. Business Insider is out with its 50 most underrated colleges in America, and Cambridge-based College Vine helped compile that list. One of the founders of the college prep and consulting company is here with us, Vinay Bascar. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, first of all, how did you come up with this list of the most underrated colleges in America? Yeah, so when you look at traditional college rankings lists like uh, U.S. News or Forbes or um, you know the Washington Post, uh, typically what they will do in their rankings is focus a lot on the traditional things that drive prestige, right? So, you know, the ranking, the acceptance rate, the SAT score, some of those factors that that come into play. But one factor that we feel like a lot of lists underrate as a company that helps families navigate the college admissions process and build, you know, school lists is uh, the financial element of college applications, right? Uh, College is the single biggest or the second biggest financial decision that most families will make, right, Mm -hmm. after maybe buying a house. And to underrate the degree to which you, you want to look at the cost of the university as well as the kind of outcomes that students have after graduation, we feel like that's an aspect of college admissions that families don't take into account. You're really enough. looking at bang for your buck. Exactly. Right? So let's talk about some of these schools on the list because parents who have juniors and seniors in high school have a whole list of schools in their memory bank that sure. might not apply anymore. So tell us why the top three underrated schools are San Jose State, 
University of Houston, and Binghamton University. Yeah, so really when you when we were looking at this list and, and putting together the data, one of the biggest trends that popped out to us is the degree to which location matters for these universities, mm -hmm. right? Um, a lot of times in a, when you look at a university and the kinds of jobs that its graduates get, obviously prestigious universities like a Dartmouth or you know a, a NESCAC school are going to have companies recruiting there regardless of where they're located. But when you when you sort of go beyond the obvious top 10 or 20 colleges, a lot of times what's going to drive the success, the success of graduates is its location. Mm -hmm. So if you look at these three schools, um, San Jose State, the University of Houston, and SUNY Binghamton, right, they're all located in proximity to some of the hottest job markets in America. And some local schools make the list as well. Number six was Worcester Polytechnic Institute, better mm -hmm. known as WPI here. Babson College was number nine, and 10 was Wellesley College. Why do these make the list? Yeah. So I think it's a little bit different for, for each of those schools. With Wellesley and Babson, uh, the, the thing about those two schools is that they actually produce, when you look, look just at the economic outcomes, they're about on par with the Ivy League schools. Here's the really interesting thing about College Vine, because you use an algorithm, uh, sort of like a lot of parents use Naviance, right, to plot out which schools kids should apply to. But yours includes which schools will give you the most money, and you help students kind of negotiate among schools and offers. Talk about how that works. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of the things that a lot of families don't realize is that you can actually negotiate your aid offers, whether it's a scholarship or financial aid. Mm. And typically the way you're going to do that is by getting accepted to multiple colleges with different scholarship packages and then kind of picking your top choice college and using the other schools to negotiate. So we coach families through that process as to you know how you should approach these universities, what you should say, what things to avoid. We give them basically a playbook for negotiating additional merit aid. Um, and I mean, last year we had some pretty strong results. We've had multiple students increase their aid by more than $100,000 over four years by using our playbook. That's it's something real I, money. Something I didn't even know you could do when I was right. applying to college, but sure. I guess you can and it works. What is one piece of advice, last question, you would give to high school juniors who are college hopefuls? Sure, yeah, I think the, the, the biggest thing that I would say is um, when you're making your school list, don't just look at the big names. You want to look at right. a balanced list of schools that includes some local and state options where you're likely to get scholarships. The list, the list, the list. The Very list, important. the list, the list. Vinay Biscara with uh, College Vine. Thank you so much for joining us. We Thanks for having it. me. The answer is more technology. More and better. More and better. More and better. And better. Well, happiness or the lack of it touches everything in our lives. And our next guest makes the case that being happier is something we can control. And joining us is Dr. Katherine Sanderson, a professor of psychology at Amherst College and the author of this new book right in front of us, The Positive Shift, Mastering Mindset to Improve Happiness, Health and Longevity. Dr. Sanderson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation. We really appreciate it. Uh, you say that uh, you study the science of happiness, uh, which is an interesting thing to study. You say there are th some things some key things that people do and can do to be happier. And you say start with practicing gratitude. Yes, so much of life is focused on what's bad. What are things that are going poorly in our lives? Many people go to sleep at night thinking about their to-do lists and the problems they're facing. And one of the simplest things we can do is to stop and instead focus on what we're grateful for in our lives right now. So not what I'll be grateful for once I buy a house, retire, win the lottery, but right now, and it could be a beautiful sunset. And that's something you should do kind of nightly or daily? Or? Absolutely, every night before you go to bed, three things. Thanks. Okay, so write them down. Let's say, all right, I'm listening 
listening to this at home and I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to start keeping a gratitude journal. But what are other ways in my daily life that I can that I can seek happiness or that I can put myself in a position to experience it? So there are lots of things and that's the good news. One of those is volunteering, doing things for somebody else. And that could be through an official you know, organization. It could be a random act of kindness. We've all heard about the car, paying for the car, paying for the car, you know, yeah. and so on. That's something that brings everybody more feelings of happiness. Spending time in nature. Lots of research suggests going for a walk outside, even when it's cold, uh, going for a walk outside, uh, seeing nature, looking at nature through a window, all of those things increase our feelings of happiness. We just got through Valentine's Day. A lot of people are sad or lonely on Valentine's Day. And you say part of making this positive shift, especially around the holidays, stay off social media. You, are, you think social media is really bad for us. I think for many people, social media is bad because the challenge with social media is you go on and everybody else seems to be having these perfect lives. They curate their lives. Absolutely. Oh, here are these Valentine's Day roses. Here's this fabulous trick. Here's, Here's Kenny G's. Right. That was slightly creepy. Yeah. But I agree. <laughs> yeah. But overwhelmingly, <laughs> those are displays of massive wealth and romance, etc. And so people then compare and say, my own life, it just isn't mm. so good. Yeah. I'm curious too, how much of this, once you commit to living a happier life, like Nobody wants to be chronically unhappy, but how, how much happier can you be? And is it just a question of developing different habits? Absolutely. So there are people who are genetically happier. So there are people who have a head start. Mm -hmm. And you all might be some of those people. I'm not. So I am not somebody who finds happiness easily. Mm -hmm. I'm really I'm not. Surprised by You're that. so energetic and it seem happy though. That's because I've studied it, I've thought about it, and I've practiced. So I look at it like metabolism. There are people, my brother's one of these people, who can eat whatever they want and they never gain a pound. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not one of those people, right, exactly. <laughs> they exist. I'm not one of those people. I have to watch what I eat. I have to be conscious about exercise. It's the same thing. I have to be conscious to make sure I'm doing things that make me feel happy. It's effort, it's time, and it's energy, but it absolutely pays off. What does make us happy, though? I mean, is that just a, an individual thing, finding happiness, or is there something that we need to do to kind of rewire and rejigger our mindset? So one key is focusing on what's good. Another thing is doing behaviors that feel good. Exercise. Uh, religious and spiritual beliefs help many people. Getting enough sleep, which many people mm, do not do. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry if that one's hard. Um, <laughs> well, but the number one thing, build good relationships. Mm. And that could be romantic relationships, friendships, family relationships. It's the number one best predictor of our happiness. Not how many, but having quality? high quality. Quality over quantity. How important is it to sort of bring other people with you on this journey? In other words, mm -hmm. if I'm listening to this right now, I may feel isolated. So what's really hard for me is to reach out to somebody and say, listen, I'm going to try to change some of the things that are, mm -hmm. that are bringing me down and keeping me there. Mm -hmm. I need your help. Mm -hmm. Is, it, is that a thing people do? It is absolutely a thing people do. And one of the best things is that happiness is contagious. Hmm. So spending time with people who are happy actually brings us up. And so finding people in your life who you know, I feel good after having coffee with that friend or after spending time with this, you know, relative, you know, spouse, child, whoever, somebody in your life, finding those people, spending time with them, it's good for you both. And you say set realistic 
expectations. I think so many times, like I tell my wife, don't expect much out of me. Uh, I say, you know, lower the expectations. Low bar. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> lower the expectations, and then and then she's pleasantly surprised. Is that, that true for, <laughs> I'm kidding, kind of. Is that true for our personal lives as well, that we set realistic expectations? Because otherwise, we could end up disappointed. Absolutely. And I think so many people put on these expectations, things like Valentine's Day, things like Christmas. You know, it has to be perfect or else it's all rotten. Mm. And instead focusing more realistically on even the small moments that can really make us happy. But don't despair if you're occasionally unhappy, mm. right? Because that's the perspective or context in any life. It is, and in fact, research shows that people who've experienced some adversity, some hard things, experience greater happiness because they've learned how to cope with the They're bad. resilient. And They're they resilient. It. They do, and that gives us important coping skills. Well, you've given us so much to think about. Dr. Katherine Sanderson, The Positive Shift. It is out now. Thank you so much for joining We're us. so Thanks happy you're invitation. here. Glad to be here. It's <laughs> contagious. <laughs> Stripping on the plane or pajamas? And both. I think both. Okay. Well, well, let's quickly, Just quickly both. Let's quickly, quickly talk about. The pajamas we really. This woman on Twitter yesterday, Lizzie Thompson. You can go see it for yourself. Lizzie underscore Thompson. Lizzie spelled with two Z's. Yes. I E. Okay. She is on an Air France flight from Paris to LAX, and she's got a photo of a man sitting next to her on the plane who had taken his pants off. And was sitting in his boxers, uh, boxer shorts. And then he also removed his socks, his shoes and socks. So he's sitting next to her on the plane with no pants on, no shoes, no socks, just in his boxers. Lizzie Thompson, you can go see it. Now, here's my thing, okay? In instantly, if you tell me I can sit next to a man who has just his boxers on, but is wearing his shoes and socks... Or you tell me I'm sitting next to a person with shorts on and no shoes and socks. 100 times out of 100, I am picking the person in his boxer shorts. I am, I, if there is a person without their shoes and socks on next to me in, in the a plane, public I'm calling the police. <laughs> I am putting them in prison. I am throwing away the key. Men's feet are disgusting. Which I, I inherently I would, I would disgusting. In what way, Liam? Let's probe this. Just they're the hairy. They're mis often misshapen. They're hairy. Their toes. Uh, I mean, Finger often toes. The, the second toe is bigger than they're the big toe. Oftentimes, yeah. let's uh, let's establish. Well, no, wait a minute. Let's, 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 let's have it be. Let us have it be resolved that feet are ugly. Well, let's make this a gender well, yeah. neutral conversation. Any I, feet? I've seen some women's yes. feet that are not exactly <laughs> yeah, a no, picnic. Okay? I don't like feet sure, in general. Sure, sure, but the point being. And this, I'll put this question to both of you. If you've got the same choice I just laid out, person in just his boxer shorts, but he's got his shoes and socks on, or he's got shorts on, but no shoes and socks, which are you choosing? Pick your poison. Is there bar service on the flight? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, my guess is this man had, is had been I mean, taking mask? part in the bar service beforehand. I don't know about that that choice, but I, I mean, this opens up a broader issue of what is acceptable and what is unacceptably disgusting yeah. behavior. And you could talk about the tea, too. I don't well, want to yeah. begin to people regularly, talk about what I see there. People regularly post on Twitter photographs of people sitting next to them yeah. on commuter rail, the tea, Amtrak, yeah. Acela, and airplanes with their bare feet up Next yeah, to them, right. either on the seat yeah. or the rest. Or, so Get incredibly rude. Never I have let to say, them fly again. that is rude. 
Yes. Yeah, so, you agree, but, but John? Which would you choose? Well, how about socks? Okay. How about stocking? Uh, you know, feet? stocking feet is. Oh, that's Bad fine. Enough, no, no, no. I even, just don't want to see yeah. their bare feet. Even the air. It's their bare okay, so it's not, the, some it's not the foul stench no, of no, feet. No, no, I mean, no. That would also he just doesn't be want to see it. Disgusting corns and bunions and brownish look, green nails. I'm telling you, if a, when, when aliens eventually land, okay, and they're looking at humans, <laughs> and whenever there's an alien movie, there's always some weird tentacle thing that it's gross about them. And Our feet will be the thing that the aliens go, what the hell happened there? Is that your lead? Least favorite part of the human body? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. It's what, up there. What's second least favorite? Second least favorite. I, there's not even. There, there's nothing you know else what? even yeah, in the okay. ballpark. Of Let, really? Back to yes. the thing at hand. Some airlines will hand you cute little socklets if it's a long overseas yeah, flight. Okay, right. so I'm fine if people want to remove a shoe. Perhaps. Yeah, sure. I would say, as the lady in the group, the boxer <laughs> shorts are a bridge too far. Yeah. All right. Well, let me ask you this: What about flossing? Oh, it's terrible. Place. Absolutely no, never. unacceptable. Never. Right. No, no, no. Yeah, because I mean, haven't you ever had a yes, something you caught to the men's room? room. And it's you go really to the yeah. men's room. You, that yeah. is for Because the problem is with the flossing, there's a lot of flinging private. going on with flossing. Right. You go to a bathroom. Well, should we quickly talk about pajama pants now, too? Okay. I, I can't believe I'm producing this comment. Well, well, <laughs> this was your idea. <laughs> this was your idea. Yes. I have yes. no idea where it would People go. People are rude in public. flip-flops because it is essentially the same thing. You Excellent the question. Feet. That's a really good that question. That is true. Flip-flops. Yeah, flip-flops are disgusting. I've never worn them. I never will wear them. I wear shoes to the beach. People think I'm crazy about this. What kind of shoes? Like sneakers. Like, like boat shoes, you know, and I'll take them off. Dog sliders. You don't wear Tevas or anything like that? No, no, no. I'm with no, you. No. I'm not a fan of sandals feet on men. are disgusting. Well, no one looks good in them. It's true. No men's feet look good. Sandals on men don't look good. It is just a fact of I, Now you're hurting my to, feelings. <laughs> <laughs> you know what also not that attractive? Knees. Knees aren't that attractive. <laughs> it's such a specific thing. Also you elbows. Said, but knees are not huh. the best. Would you, are, if you ever have your family picture taken on a beach, wear pants. Do knees gross you out more than feet? No, no, no. Feet are it's the, the absolute worst. Yeah. Again, if aliens... <laughs> Come to visit. That will be what they single out. My favorite thing about Liam is he has an entire philosophy behind all of his opinions. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Well, yeah, no, I've thought them through. I've thought them through. He has thought it through to such an extent. Yeah, like my dog and cat philosophy. Yes. Have you heard his dog and cat theory? No, I don't believe I I have. Take it away. If if I love cats, okay, but dogs are better, and this is why. When the world ends, the apocalypse hits. It's just you and your cat. The cat will eat you. If it's just you and your dog, the dog will let you eat it. <laughs> That's that the is difference. the difference between cats and dogs. <laughs> the cat he has thought this through. See, so I've thought these things through. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have proof that he went to Harvard? <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. So. Please give us a rating and a review. Subscribe and share. Hope you enjoyed the talk of brutalism and about colleges and about how to be happy. We're yeah. very happy here. And uh, it's at Studio BZ Pod on Twitter. I'm at Paula Eben WBZ. And what will make us happiest is if you subscribe and recommend it to a friend and give us a rating and a review. We would love that. Tell your friend. I mean, where else can you hear discussion of extra toes <laughs> and only, architecture only on studio and, you can and tw- architecture and you can tweet me on that topic or any other at Keller at large we're and coming up on our big first anniversary guys I'm very excited yeah we, we're gonna have to do like a little best of thing. the first anniversary is paper 
So we'll have to come up oh. with paper gifts for each other. Maybe we'll get paid? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. Well, until then, we'll, we'll be, be seeing, seeing you. you. <laughs> I don't know. got to run some ads before we get paid. How long I'm going to edit that? Yeah, that's going to be a little work of art. Wow. That's going to be a work of art.